Hey, I'm Tegan. And I'm Eric. This is the Working Weaver Podcast, where each week we have discussions with weavers and the supply chain that supports us with hopes to build depth, transparency, and connection within the hand weaving community. This week's episode is sponsored by Comfort Cloth Weaving, a company specializing in heirloom quality handwoven products for the home. Find out more at comfortclothweaving.com. Have questions about weaving? Send them to hello at workingweaverpod.com, and we will have many episodes dedicated to answering those questions with our podcast guests. This week, we talk with Lily Marsh from Queensbury, New York. Lily is a production weaver whose work is directly related with her active role in the Fibershed community. She views the weaving and textile world through the lens of her PhD in American Cultural Studies at Purdue University with a focus on American craft in the 20th century. Out of her studios in Queensbury and Glens Falls, she produces fine scarves, shawls, and simple garments, as well as throws and blankets. Her work primarily showcases the beautiful qualities of naturally colored, regionally sourced wool, but she also has used silk, tencel, and cotton in her work. I met Lily through our shared connection to the Battenkill Fiber and Spinning Mill, and more recently through the Hudson Valley Textile Project. Her meticulous attention to detail when it comes to her weavings are inspiring and really showcase what hand weaving can do with locally produced fiber. We hope you enjoy our discussion about the dynamics and identities within the craft community, the journey from learning to weave to her community activism, and how the current pandemic has affected our business growth. We started our conversation by talking to Lily about defining your identity in the fiber community. Do you think that identification within the knitting community would help in the weaving community if like we were able to have more groups or identification? Uh, or do you think that would just impede movement because people are just too afraid to label themselves beyond you know, a weaver? I I think that that is a is a powerful way to start. There was a great book I read years ago that was talking about how the gay pride movement in San Francisco really took off when the gay, the pride parade started there because it allowed for so many groups of people who were very different and whose only connection was they were all gay was what is it allowed for them to each have their own individual expression that was publicly visible right they each had their own little float and that little group of people could create what they wanted to do they didn't have to convince anybody else it was important they didn't have to okay it with anybody else it didn't have to meet any kind of i'm sure there were some kind of city standards but they didn't you know there wasn't a cultural standard and that somehow that celebration of just the wild free-for-all creativity gave that movement an identity and a polit suddenly there were enough of them who would stand there and say i'm gay that they had political mass they had a political gravity and so when you say that about ravelry i think that you might that might be a huge part of it was the the idea that we could all stand there and look at each other and be identified as, as, yeah, I'm one of those Shetland Island knitters, but I also do the dildos. You know, I'm one of the godless atheist group, but I also, you know, follow Elizabeth Zimmerman. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. There, Because there shouldn't really be a limitation to 
the labels that you have and be, to be able to explore within your craft. Yes, exactly. That's really interesting. You got me on this whole rant this morning. Yeah. I was like, so into it. <laughs> I know. I've just been thinking about it all day. Just, you know, what, what, what would I need to see? What would perk me up about weaving? And I, you know, I, I, I just feel like I want to see weavers who feel like they're a, a, a massive piece of a community and they know where their stuff comes from and they have a purpose for what they're doing. I, I, don't, I, I don't know how to describe it very well, but. Yeah, no, I love it. I love it. It sounds a little bit like what we're trying to do with the Working Weaver Society which is connected to this podcast. Right, right. In fact, I heard that where you, uh, Gail, you were talking about it to Gail the other day. Mm -hmm. or, and I was listening to that just last night. And, and I must admit, I, I heard that and I thought, how come I don't know about this group? <laughs> we literally just started. It sounded like it. You said that interview was sort of your cold open or something. But yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, because yeah, we did, we have a um, Weave Along going right now. And yeah, I saw that. It's just like, we do a prompt and then people can join and make whatever they want with whatever materials they want. Yeah. As long as yeah. it's weaving, it just has to be weaving. Yeah. Yeah. We had a very cool um, Zoom meeting uh, oh, good. last good. week. Yeah. Last Thursday, I think. Yeah. And um, people came from like all over the US. We had somebody from Canada. Oh, wow. And Lovely. Yeah, and people were like really psyched to be there, which I felt like cool, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's nice to feel like you're you're sort of you're filling some niche that people have been looking for. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I was really interested in talking to you because you you're a professional weaver, but you work at it from such a different perspective. You're starting from the materials, you're going through the source. And I really kind of want to know how, what brought you to this point? What kind of dictated your path to bring you to this point in your career? So I started weaving, oh, you know, gosh, 30 years ago. Um, how old are my kids? I started weaving that long ago. Um, and, I, and I started weaving when they were toddlers and, and learned, as I said, from through the guild structure, through a lot of lovely older women. Um, who, you know, were happy to take time with me and to put up with having toddlers while you're doing it. Um, and I, well, I was a pretty conventional weaver in a lot of ways, except that I also was very excited about this knit wire sculpture work that I was doing. Um, and so there was always sort of uh, my weaving in, in one sense, I, I'm always, I always feel like I'm very bifurcated in some way in the sense that I sort of had this lovely, you know, not particularly adventurous, but I could do some adventurous things in weaving. Like I loved chivalry on the loom and I, you know, did a lot of dyeing and I uh, did a lot of painted warp stuff, um, but not very exciting materials. I used a lot of tensile, uh, some wool, a, a lot of silk, as much silk as I could afford basically. <laughs> um, and and then there was this sculptural work, which was incredibly innovative. I knew nobody else who was doing this stuff. I had a, sometimes even a hard time convincing myself that it was like artwork. It wasn't just like this weird stuff that I was doing, you know. Um, and so 
when I and when I was juried into a gallery, um, uh, a cooperative member-owned gallery, it's very high-end stuff, uh, and it's very successful. It's still going now. It's uh, it's probably twenty years old now. This gallery, um, and we sold a lot of stuff through there. And so I would go back and forth between like this super engaged uh, knit wire sculptural work and this really safe, comforting space of weaving, you know. Um, and then I went back to school. I went back to school for this PhD in American studies. And there's something about American studies, which is all about uh, cross field work. So my field became art history, anthropology, cultural history, and social, uh, sociology. Uh, so that it became this like really rich space where I could ask questions that didn't really fit in any specific field. But my interest was all about community engagement. How does a community come into being? How does a group of people suddenly cohere uh, and begin to identify who they are? And so I studied knitting, and I had been a long time knitter. Um, but, but when I came out of school, so I finished my PhD in 2016. And in fact, the first weaving that I did when I was out was I wove uh, big shawls for my entire committee. My entire doctoral committee got a shawl. Um, and we moved to New York. And there was, you know, I started weaving in the old way, you know, just thinking I would do sculptural work, thinking I would just weave because I, you know, I love colors, and I love textiles. And suddenly that kind of weaving was profoundly unsatisfying. Yeah. Uh, it was, it just wasn't working for me. I didn't need that safe space anymore, maybe, I, you know. Um, and I got hooked up with Batten Kill Fiber Mill. And suddenly the realization that this could be community engagement work, that, that my being a weaver could be a form of community activism uh, that had political ramifications in terms of keeping small businesses going, that it could have uh, cultural ramifications about what do we do well here in the Northeast and what shouldn't we be trying to do on this land, uh, on the idea that, that textiles is an agricultural product. Um, that, that just became so tremendously exciting to me um, in ways that sort of, you know, in some ways they sort of, you know, healed that sort of previously bifurcated feel to my life. Um, now I still like, you know, kind of being this hybrid thing going, you know, between community activism and, and, and uh, artisan and practices, artisan practices. Um, but, but that's sort of uh, how I sort of arrived at this place, you know, I, I no longer feel the need to, um, to show off my creativity as much as I feel the need to be part of this community and to be so, a supportive actor in the work that we do. That, that's sort of a long answer to that question. <laughs> no, I think, I think it's important to know, especially coming from, you have a formal education background, but it's not necessarily, a, like I have a formal education background in weaving, yes. but yours is in more of the study of sure. how- Cultural studies, yeah. 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 So I think coming from that perspective is a really interesting way to view what you do because you're seeing it through a different lens. Yes, you know? yes, and it's a lens that that I that that is the reason I needed to go back to school. 
I felt like I had reached a point where I didn't know why I was doing this anymore. And I didn't know where I wanted to go next. I love doing it, but I could see sort of there's an end to this tunnel. Uh, and I don't know where to go. And so, you know, if you're me, you go back to school. You know, yeah. we live in a college town. My kids were old enough and they accepted me back into graduate school. Um, so, yeah, so that lens is just incredibly productive for me in, in terms of how I see myself fitting into the work of the community. Yeah. Do you feel like the work that you do um, in some ways, you're doing work to showcase the work that your community is doing. Yeah. Like you've yeah. got your farms, they're raising sheep, you've got MJ spinning the wool, and then you're creating a, a value-added product for lack of a better term, some sure. kind of piece of work um, that is also, not only is it providing a life for you, but it's also showing off uh, all of the other lives that it's providing for. Exactly. Exactly. That's a great way to put it. I feel like in many ways, I'm just sort of a translator, right? I am, uh, I'm taking this wool, say Crazy Legs. So right now I've got all this Romney from Crazy Legs Farm. Um, and Norma, Norma Johnson Glacy, she's uh, done, you know, she's done decades of work in the community with sheep farming and, uh, you know, her animals, she sends her animals to the 4-H fair every year with a bunch of different kids that, you know, want to show sheep and she's embedded in the community. Um, and so I'm weaving her wool and I want to show what her wool is good at. You know, I want to show off her work, her decades of breeding these sheep, her decades of care. Um, now, do I want the weaving to look good? Of course I do. <laughs> right, obviously, <laughs> right? yeah. Um, but because I want it to be weaving and not just a pile of yarn, you know. Um, but, I, but I do see this, this feeling that this, this thing we get from the earth. That's one of the things I like about natural fibers. It's this thing we get from the earth. And we get it every year. And it asks what we can do with it. Um, and I want to, you know, I want to take what I'm given with it make something out of it and then give it so it can go on and keep being part of somebody's story. It can be wrapped around a little kid or an older woman or, you know, a, a young man who can, you know, go off and be who he needs to be in the world. Um, but that's what, like you say, that sort of, that person that's, that's just a piece of the story of the trajectory of this, this work. Yeah. That's interesting. Cause that's kind of not in sort of the same well articulated way, but we're also sort of looking at our work in terms of like taking someone else's hard work, showcasing it off, elevating it to a point where it becomes like a passed down multi-generational kind of yeah. um, item that people really kind of look back on and remember when their grandmother got it and how special it is to them today. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I, I think that that's, you know, I, I think that that's something that is squarely in the artisan tradition and is less part of the artist tradition, right? Because in so much of the tradition of the artist, suddenly the artist is the hero. And I just don't have any need to be that hero anymore. You know, I want to be part of the story of the community. Mm. So, and I, and I, there's, you know, I guess maybe, maybe, you know, I feel like 
I spent years as a young mom, as a young uh, woman, trying to figure out how to yell who I am. This is me, this is me, this is me. Um, but as you age, you realize that's kind of a boring conversation. <laughs> and, and maybe we can say, this is me. And the other part of that conversation should be, who are you? Mm. Who are we together? Yeah. You know, um, and that becomes suddenly a much more interesting conversation. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I think that so much of, of contemporary art doesn't go on to that second question. Doesn't yeah. go on to who are you? Who are we together? Who are, who are we? Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's where the artisan markets have at least started coming back is they're like, okay, this is who we are, but this is how our work relates to you. And yeah. this is how, how can this fit in your life? What right. can you do with it? Yeah. Right. So it's really yeah. interesting for me to hear you talk about it because I, I, when we first met, I knew you were weaving for Bat and Kill. Right, right, right. I got so excited about it. And I was like, oh, another production weaver. Right. But the more that I talked to you and the more that we've worked kind of in similar circles, you tend to have much more of a community building side yeah. Yeah. to your business, which I think is so fascinating. Um, I know one of the questions that I asked was, do you employ people? Well, I think quickly to touch on that last point you made, that the working in the community and working with you in that, like through the Hudson Valley Textile Project, through the Guild, um, different organizations and stuff, I think also kind of inspired us towards trying to put some resources together for weavers. I mean, yeah. we've been talking about this for like two or three years now. At least three years. Yeah. And um, we sort of have had ideas, filled up notebooks, lost notebooks, come back <laughs> to things. Um, something has happened and sparked an idea. And then we sort of were hit with uh, the current situation with uh, uh, oh, yeah. uh, Corona and all that. And we thought... You know, all that time we spent talking about this, this is the perfect time to try to execute something like that. If ever there was a time. Exactly. Because they're yes. looking for community. Exactly. Yeah. So, and 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 kudos to you guys for doing that because um because it is something that the the the, the weaving, the textile community has needed for a long time. But it also takes a, a, you know, a kind of special confluence of skills. It takes the technical skills in order to put something like a podcast together. It takes the weaverly knowledge. It takes certain emotional intelligence to be able to talk to people about where they are, what they're doing, and to draw out the interesting conversations and, and to make that safe space for someone to say, well, I don't really know what I'm doing and I've never tried this by myself, but maybe I can try this. Yeah. yeah. Maybe mm -hmm. I can be brave. Yeah. Well, I think we, during the Zoom meeting we had for our Weave Along, there was one person who was like, I'm, I'm not, I don't design my own patterns. I just copy things and I feel like a fake because that's what I do. Yeah. And it's like, well, you're just starting out. There's such a plethora of patterns to choose from. Why not try it? And then as you get comfortable, you can start mixing oh, yeah. them together. And, and you just learn so much by using those patterns, you know, just download mm -hmm. wholesale off of handweaving.net and... Yeah. You know, go to town. Go to yeah. town. Yeah. 
Absolutely. And the fact that she was able to feel comfortable enough to say, I don't know what I'm doing. Exactly. I think is a testament to how much this community needs to support each other, to be like, it's yeah. okay to not know what you're doing. Right, right. Because we're all here to teach you and elevate you to be a better weaver, to be more involved and more connected. Yeah, because yeah, I think one person there said that and then nine other people were like, oh, well, here's a different resource for every person that's here yeah. that you can either ask, message on any kind of social media. You could come to the website and post in the forum. Here's books you can look at. You know, yeah. here's software you can get so you can mess around with the patterns and see what happens. And, and sort and, of encourage. Yeah, and it's and it's not only are there all these resources, it's okay to acknowledge you might need a couple of them. Yeah. You know, it's okay to say, I this scares me to death and I don't know how to do that. And please mm -hmm. send me to the right website or send me to the yeah. 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 Hit me with a book, you know. Yeah. Hit me or with like yeah. even join a guild. Yeah. yeah. I know it's not possible for everybody because they're not like in areas where there's uh prolific guilds, but there are online resources. I know that there's a really good online guild that um, some people have uh, joined. Yeah, I can't remember the name of it. But... Oh, that's right. There is an online guild, and I've seen that a couple times, and I've kind of been tempted to get into that. Um, I can't remember what sort of held me back. I don't... Yeah, I heard it. I heard it first on the Just Yarn podcast. Yeah, that she does. And it seemed really interesting. And then there, there was like one thing that she said that kind of held me back from it. Yeah. And I can't remember what it was. Yeah. But yeah, it might be worth just looking at that again. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Yeah, absolutely. So, oh, I got so lost. We got on the table. <laughs> no, it's okay. It's, I really, really the questions that I sent were more as a foundation for our conversation. Sure, sure. Yeah. So. Oh, you were there earlier. Yeah. So I was going to ask, since you are a community builder, you, you were employing somebody. Right, so right. So how, how is that process for you? How, how is that going? Well, I miss her right now. <laughs> I miss her terribly right now. We started, I think, with six. We were up to 10. And I was, you know, starting to plan on maybe 20 hours a week from her when the pandemic hit. All right. We had been so productive. Uh, you know, she would just, so I have two studios. Uh, and my main studio with my big looms is at my house in the basement. I have a big walkout basement. It's got a separate entrance. Um, and for the early weeks of the pandemic, we had sort of set it up so that Angie had all her own tools. She was running my big 60 inch uh, PDL, uh, professional Dombey loom. Uh, and I would, you know, I would give her the specs of a job, you know, or, or have a beam warped for her and ready for her to thread. Um, and she would weave on that and she would wipe everything down and, you know, leave. And then I would wipe everything down. Um, but then as it became a little more clear how, how much we needed to be careful, uh, even in those early days, you know, it just made us clear that we were less comfortable with having her come into the house. Right. Yeah. Um, and that's now where we're trying to figure out how do we have Angie come back? having her still come in the house 
you know, um, my husband is a little bit older and he does have a little bit of an underlying lung issue. So there's a little bit of a high risk factor there. Um, so we're still working on that. I love having an employee. It, it took us a good um, three or four months to really settle into how we work together. Uh, but I just loved it. I loved it. I, and, and that's, that was another, another one of your questions was sort of what do I like about weaving? I, I love its solitary quality, but boy, were we being super productive together or the early yeah. You know, I mean, we sat down, we took the first week of the, of the year of, in January and we just weighed out and measured and got the paperwork for like 20 different projects so that we could just, there was a bag, the next project to go on that loom was this bag. The nice. next project to go on this, it was, it was so satisfying. And now yeah. it feels like I'm swimming in mud, right? Cause it's just me and yeah. you know. I, I was just in the process of training two people yeah. to weave for me. And it was just like, they were getting comfortable with the loom. They could, they knew all the quirks about it. So they could, right. we, they were getting comfortable weaving yardage. They didn't have to worry about it. And then everything kind of hit the fan. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. so how were you handling that? Or maybe you don't really want this to be, have them edit this out, but how were you handling the employment aspect? Because, you know, cause I think at some point, Angie's not going to want to weave for me anymore. You know, she's, got a young kid she's gonna move on to a better job she's yeah. not gonna work at the mill anymore i'm gonna have to find somebody i figure out how to hire somebody so i was doing it kind of piecework so yeah. i would say they were weaving towels how many yards they would weave in a day i would pay them by the yard what uh -huh. they would do so then that kind of gives them the incentive to hey if i weave five yards i get 15 dollars a yard Ah. Make some good money, but it takes the training to get up to that point. Yeah, yeah. And so that way I'm training them for the labor that they can do. So if they can only weave two yards in a four hour shift, that's okay. I can still pay them for their time. Yeah, right. Um, that's two hour, two yards you don't have to weave. Yeah, exactly. It's two yeah. yards that's off my plate already. It'll it'll be ama it'll be amazing if we all survive. I mean, yeah. financially, economically, you know. Yeah, it's been, uh, so one of the things that we're working on now is I have a client that we're weaving samples for, for high-end handbags. Right. And she is really interested in localized fiber, working with the fiber community, knowing the story behind it. And so that's why she ended up reaching out to me because she knows that I'm willing to do small batches to do right. the testing. Right. And so I ended up going to MJ and saying, hey, I want to try using some of the local fiber to us to introduce to this woman so we can create kind of this network too. Exactly. And but I think there will always be that kind of work. Yeah. Right? Now, the kind of work that might be harder to come by in the future will be the, the small farmers who are willing to make an investment in a yarn and a product. Yes. So I think there will be designers who can make an investment in a product, but it might be more difficult for farmers to do that. Because, you know, a sheep walk is so marginally profitable anyway. Yeah. You, know, you have to love sheep to do it. So yeah. if it's costing you too much to do it, you can't do it no matter how much you love it. Yeah. So I'm curious if how how we could support small farmers. So like we're we're kind of the in-between. Right. 
like the bigger designers and the small farmers, we're the ones who really take the material and bring it to life. Right. And, and so, I'm willing to work in small batches, you know, six blankets. I'll make you six blankets. Yeah. 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 Exactly. So I'm curious as to what do you think, what do you think would be the best direction to go in to help support small farmers coming well, coming up? Like how how is how as small professional weavers able to support the materials that we're taking in? Yeah. Considering so, the higher cost as well. Say that again, Eric. Considering the higher cost. Like yeah. if we went to Henry's attic and bought uh, like Crown Colony, for example, right. which is like oh like 10 or 12 or something dollars a pound when we're looking at ordering or buying whole like buying a whole chunk of wool from a farm and then having it processed right the cost is definitely cost you 40 dollars a pound yeah right yeah yeah um it's 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 very tricky it's very tricky um and i am afraid it is going to be economically risky for a long time mm. because uh, it's not going to get cheaper, particularly if MJ goes out of business. You know, if you know, this may knock a lot of people who are doing stuff for love out of the business. You know, all those mini mills where people are spending all their spare time and not not paying themselves for the time they're putting in, and you know, living off of other incomes because they love this thing they do. Um, I think it it'll knock it'll it'll knock a lot of the, the 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 real productive people out of the out of the community in a sense. Mm. Um, so one thing that I'm doing, I I have to admit, I am in a different position. You know, I'm older. My husband's retired. We own our house. You know, financially, I we are not dependent on this. My studio has to pay for itself, and you know, a little bit of profit, or at least not be horrifyingly money losing you know right, right. Um, you know uh so so that is an a, a privileged place to be in um but one thing that i've been be from that place wanting to offer so so like you say there are farmers that i already have a, a relationship with one of which is blue pepper shannon eaton up in blue pepper um and uh She's got a lovely flock. She's got uh, she's got avenues for sales. What she doesn't have is a huge amount of capital. So what I kind of worked to deal with her this year that she's going to go ahead and invest in yarn. She's going to have her clip made into yarn by MJ, and then she's going to hang on to that and send me enough for four to six blankets at a time, and I will just weave that up as she's ready for it. And I kind of, I'm going to weave that on commission for her. So in the sense of she only owes me once she sells it, right? So I'm not going to weave up all her yarn for her at once, but she's going to have four to six blankets, maybe a little bit more. I'm not sure how many quite she's thinking of. Um, and she will pay me when she sells it um, because that, that's something that I can do for her. I can help her stay in the market. I can help her have products to sell. Uh, that she doesn't need to upfront three thousand dollars for her clip, you know. Yeah. yeah, I think that that's um, that's something that I've seen a lot of uh, recently. Yeah. In that um, people are 
sort of adjusting the ways that they're requiring payment or yeah. that yeah. they're transacting business um, yeah. so that the burden isn't all like this minute. Yeah. That we're sharing the risk a little bit. We're sharing yeah. the risk. But I must admit, if I didn't know Shannon so well, would I be willing to go out on that limb for somebody who I didn't know? You know, right. I'm not so sure that I would find that so easy. I mean, there are other designers that I'm working with that I have not made that offer to. Mm -hmm. uh, because, you know, I've never met you. I don't know you from Adam. Yeah, but I think that's also part of the community. Like, yeah. you're part of this community. They're part of this community. And because you both have established relationships in this community, you sort of are willing to work with each other. Right, right. And, that, and, that, and of course, the downside to that is... Um, how does one become an insider to that community? Mm. How do you how do you let people into that? How do you not make that a, a hard and fast line, but a somewhat porous line that allows for people to move in and out of, of that? You know, I mean, one of us is both an affirming uh, sort of statement, but it can also be an incredibly destructive kind of statement. Correct. Yeah, but I think that's. Um... I'm not sure the answer to that question. I think it's a longer game yeah. where you sort of have to establish yourself with the people and build the relationships over time. I think it's like that in any kind of community. Yes, absolutely. Those are all very sort of, that's that standard song and dance for how do you become at home in a place? Mm -hmm. you know, how do you get the Weavers Guild to accept you despite the fact that you have weird colored hair? <laughs> You know, right. how do you get, you know, yeah. 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 You, know, you, you, you keep, you know, I think the, the thing that we can do is keep the conversation open mm -hmm. so that, you know, I have places to express, express my reservations. You have places to express your concerns and together we can, you know, move forward. Yeah. Yeah. And I think too, this is, um, Right now is a good time to both uh, help your community and to join a new community, maybe. Yeah, yeah. If you can show up now and you can help, you can really sort of um, make a big difference in probably almost any community that needs help in some way or another, inside or outside of weaving. Yeah, I think that this is, you know, another way of saying that is that this is, this is, you know, the storm and whether or not you stand up or you run and hide, people are going to know that, right. <laughs> you know, and they're going to remember. Know. Yeah. Yeah. You know, not, not because you were an evil villain, but simply because I, I could depend on you or I, I really couldn't, or I didn't mm -hmm. really know you that much. You know, I didn't, you know, we have to draw those lines. So. Yeah. So speaking of community, I kind of wanted to hear a little bit on your perspective on the weaving community when you first started versus where you see it now. Well, um, so when I started, as, as I said, you know, it was in the guild structure. It was, uh, you know, it was a, uh, I, I never, as you said, had, had any kind of formal training in, in weaving or even in art. Um, you know, when I went to high school, you were either on the college academic track or you, you know, were in, uh, you know, I think, I don't even think I was allowed to take art classes in my high school because I was, you know, I was going to college. Um, 
And uh, so, you know, so I was a member of Handweavers Guild of America for a lot of years. I, in fact, I still am, or I should say am again. I, I kind of dropped out of that for a while when I was in school. Um, and then uh, I took a lot of workshops, a lot of, a lot of, I, one of the best workshops I ever did, you started doing Shibori on the loom and it just made me go dig out all my notes. I had taken a week long workshop with the, uh, Yoshiko Wada and wow. oh my gosh, it was just, just wonderful. Um, so how do I, so you, how do I see the community now versus then? Yeah. I have to admit that I, that, that I, that I see it as, as significantly unchanged in a lot of ways. And I don't know if that is simply because of my view, my view of the community is from the same position as a guild member or, um, or whether or not there, there are avenues that I simply haven't explored. So I, I have been dismayed at how little change I've seen in the community. It seems to me um, really, really kind of dismayingly stuck at a kind of 90s baby boomer sort of ethos or I'm not sure what the word is that I want. Um, but I look, you know, even though like our guild, they do fabulous work. They do fabulous work. Um, but it's the same work. It's always the same work. Um, now, part of that is because, you know, we weave on looms that produce rectangular or square objects, <laughs> right. you know, and it's a little bit like, you know, the old design school exercise of here's a rectangle, do something interesting. Here's another rectangle, do mm -hmm. something else interesting, right? So we're really digging out the creativity. Um, but I just don't see that the weavers have kept up with the real excitement that I see in other sort of closely allied artisanal efforts, right? Um, I, I, and I must admit, one of the things that really sort of just, just my heart sinks every time I see another article on the Bauhaus or on Annie Albers, because it's like, for God's sake, that was 1930. That was almost a hundred years ago that we are still going back and saying, oh, weren't they influential? Has there been nobody since then? And, and the truth is, no, there really hasn't. There really hasn't. Um, there are interesting things. We just mentioned Yoshiko Wada, you know? Um, John Marshall is another, you know, Indigo Dime. But it tends to be, um, it tends to be sort of corollary arts. It tends to be dyeing. It tends to be the knitters. It tends to be, there's so much excitement in sewing these days. Yeah. I, I, so many young, new, exciting designers in the hand sewing market. It's a huge movement in make your own clothes. Where are the weavers? Why are weavers not part of that? Um, I remember, and in fact, and I think this is an old thing, because in the 90s, when I was super active in my guild, uh, and there were people who were getting very excited about weaving. They didn't stay in the guild. They moved to the association called Surface Design. Yep. Right? They moved into printing. They moved into painting. They moved in. And, and the weavers were all just, nope, nope, we do this. And, and, and it was so, I don't know, weirdly isolationist. Weirdly... Um, 
you know, I, it's, 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 as much as I like big words, I have a hard time talking about what the heck is wrong with weavers. We yeah. seem to, to just withdraw from innovation and excitement and, you know, and, and, I, and I have to think, I think a lot of it is, you know, just this real, I don't know, I, I, is, it's, a, it's a real, you know, like if I'm the artist, I'm supposed to be the solitary person who does things. We have such a romantic idea of artists, right? They sit alone in their garret, they have short, sad lives. <laughs> Probably all druggies, <laughs> um, but that's such a limited position. It's that's you know I mean like so one of the things every time we talk about Navajo weaving, right? People love those rugs. They pay millions of dollars for these rugs. They are extraordinary weaving, but almost never do you want to hear. Anybody talk about how did all those rugs get into white American hands? Right. They got there in a very ugly way. And it was a systemically ugly way. We want to talk about the beautiful object and we don't want to talk about it as the product of a human system. And I think that's a huge gap in the weavers worldview that we want to take our materials or take our ideas as if they are contextless as if they have no history no past it's a commodity like air it just came to my hand and there it is and here's what i did with it when that's just such a fruitless place to be that's really super interesting i um kind of had the same feeling about paper because I got a fellowship in college to study basically how the how paper manufacturing moved across the world and all the wars that were fought over it oh, and yeah. how cultures would just go in and they would essentially burn a city to the ground so that they could take the master paper makers. Yeah. And, you know, we sort of, I think that what you're talking about is a larger systemic issue in the entire human race where at some point the thing that we're talking about becomes so big or so far in the past that there's no way for us to connect ourselves to it without a lot of either self-reflection or study or some other um, means beyond the object. Yeah. Yeah, and, and to look at something in that kind of a timeline means that we're pretty small. Right. Yeah. And that's really hard for us to face. Yeah, How barely very a blip. Small we are. Mm -hmm. in, you know, and I think and I think that's that's you know, that's part of 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 the, you know, the sort of romantic idea of the artist is that we're not small. I am immense. I am the I am the entire my creativity means everything. Um, when that's, it's just, you know, I just don't think that that's a fruitful place to be. I don't see that that produces really stunning work. I think that part of um, what we're seeing from like uh, clothing designers and accessory designers is that they're coming to us basically saying, if you want this job, we are requiring you 
to have a story for the materials that you're sending to us. So I think we're seeing a bit of a different side of um, the industry than you are. Do you mean, do you mean they're requiring you to, to make up a story or mm -hmm. they want to know where the context is? I yes. think that's, a, I think that's an excitement in the world of clothing that could travel to weaving, but that that is not a natural state for weaving and hasn't been for a hundred years. Interesting. Yeah, because it's sort of forcing us to um, reevaluate like our supply chain and think about where are we getting what from. And then it sort of also is forcing the customer to decide how bad they want it. Yeah, yeah. Um, they're, do they want it at $200 a yard? Yeah, they, that's a cost. Yeah. Yeah. And the temptation, of course, is always to just make up a story. You know, I right. mean, that's that's the issue of greenwashing in so much of you know corporate branding of we're environmentally friendly, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah, I mean, what counts? Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. I had a thought too while you were talking about how that shift from like it's been a hundred years since weavers really kind of gave identity and context to the materials. Yeah, but do you relate that to? the industrialization of spinning or like the industrialization of textiles as a whole, like as soon as it got out of the weaver's hands into these automated machines that we started losing that context. I'm not sure. The, 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 the history of textiles is the history of the industrial revolution, of course. Right. Right. I mean, the first stuff to be, um, uh, produced on an industrial level was textiles. On a mechanical, right? I mean, that's the, the Luddite revolts, right? Um, but it's also true that cloth is absolutely unlike food in terms of local consumption, because cloth has always been one of the things that traveled great distances from its making. That's what the Silk Road was, mm -hmm. right? It traveled from China to Europe and as trade goods, right? Because it didn't spoil, could be kept safe, right? Um, so, so the idea that, that the Industrial Revolution changed it, I'm not sure as much as I kind of think our use of textiles changed in the 20th century. Okay. Um, back in the early part of the century, you know, a lot of even just middle class men's and women's clothing were made locally. The cloth wasn't made locally necessarily, but the, there were seamstresses who did nice clothes, right? If you wanted a nice dress, you didn't go buy it at the store, you had somebody make it for you, right? And that's still true all the way up through, you know, the 1920s, I think. I, now this is territory, I'm less, less authoritative on that certainly. Um, but once we start accepting a sort of faceless provisioning of what we wear, and we start accepting that that our clothing does not express 
me who I am, as much as it expresses some aspirational, now that's not, that's not, wait, that's not quite what I want to say because clothing <laughs> has always been aspirational, right? Yeah. Clothing is always aspirational. But, so, but how do we get to where suddenly it's important that I wear the gap instead of, I like these t-shirts. I am comfortable in t-shirts. I, you know what I mean? Yeah. There so there's a difference a, there that starts to develop. There's sort of a, a brand. brand yeah. yeah. It's brand revolution. So it's brand revolution. Yeah. Yeah. That suddenly isn't just, oh, in our town, we have these wonderful seamstresses who make really nice clothes and they all read, you know, I mean, my God, the Paris fashion dolls that used to be sent all over the world for these right. seamstresses to copy. And, you know, it wasn't like they were all fabulous designers. Um, but that was, a, it was a less immediate branding in that sense. Um, but somehow then, somehow my identity, it being important that I'm suddenly, I'm wearing somebody, some company, right? becomes much more um in the sense it kind of it kind of dissolves the actual history of that garment into a, a story a narrative that may or may not have any touch in reality mm -hmm. right to that story you know i mean we all like a narrative and some of those narratives are great you know like Yvonne chenard and his and his and patagonia you know they're doing so much. I mean, you can now send your, your Patagonia clothes back to them and they will repair them and send them back to you. Right? They're doing so much for climate sustainability. Um, but most brands aren't like that. Right. <laughs> you know, most branding isn't like that. So yeah. it's interesting to me that you are talking about the what kind of dismays you about the weaving community and our communities as a whole on how they can grow and get more connected. What, how would you view that as an opportunity for a weaver? Like how could a weaver change the perspective, change the narrative to kind of build these communities, be more connected, bring some more excitement back like you're seeing in Ravelry and the sewing community, what's something that we could do to kind of elevate ourselves up? I think that you're doing it. I think your idea of the Working Weaver Society and the podcast and this place where we can all um, openly talk about our passions, right? Openly just say, I love, I love wool. I love wool. And, and I don't want to, you know, I used to love silk and rayon and all this stuff, but now all I want to weave with is wool. And I really like, you know, this kind of wool. And you know what I mean? And, and I want it to be climate sustainable. I want it to be economically uh, equitable. I want, you know, these are the things I want. Um, I think you're starting to do it. I think um, there need to be more places like that where um, we can just admit our passions and celebrate them together. I do have some uh, questions about the in-studio kind of stuff, oh, sure. show of weaving. Like how big is, how long is the average warp that you put on? What, what's worth it? What's worth it? Oh, okay. So like my minimum, if you're ordering blankets for me is a minimum of four. So like 12 yards. Don't, don't make me put on less than 12 yards. 
um there are special customers that i would do slightly less than that for you know mm -hmm. but i won't put that on the power wall you know if it's less than 12 yards it goes on on my hand looms and, and um it it's you know but so a minimum warp for me from a customer is four twin size blankets and that's yeah. about 12 yards yeah um was there a second part to that question you just said what's my minimum yeah and then i had sort of uh i don't know if the answer might be different but what's worth it yeah what's worth it um well i will say that that minimum of four those are all the same blankets don't ask me to change that pattern every oh, blanket. Yeah. exactly you know yeah. that yeah not doing that um although but again you know now that i am now I feel enmeshed in a partnership with so many farmers, you know, so like crazy legs, you know, she just ordered, you know, six shawls for me. And I did do, you know, three of one pattern. Then I changed my Dobby chain and that took a couple hours and I did three of, of a different pattern, you know, cause just so she'd have something different to offer her customers. Right. Mm -hmm. um, but I wasn't going to do three and rework or rethread you know i was gonna change the dobby pattern not the you know um but yeah about about you know 12 yards smaller than that i start looking at that with with a, uh, some questions yeah mm. yeah I, um making the uh same threading produce different things has been quite a um staple in our design work so yeah. that we could put on 50 yards and maybe come off with six different things. Right, right, right. How do you price, price your products? So I, a lot of what I do is what I call weaving services, right? It's yarn that someone brings to me and they want finished products. So I, they are just paying me for weaving. Um, so what I ended up doing was every year I try and do a time study. I pick a, a pick a project that is, you know, typical, maybe six blankets, 10 blankets, right? Um, and I, from the day I get the, the cones of yarn in my car at the mill, I keep meticulous records of how much time it takes me to do everything, to get it to the, get it to the house, to analyze it, to check the yards per pound, do a little washing of it, see how much it blooms, um and then the design time and email time and then the beaming and the threading and the slaying of the reed and then the fiddling with the loom to get it adjusted and the filling of the bobbins everything from from there to the final steam i have bagged it and i have taken it back to the loom um and i count those hours up and i charge twenty dollars an hour uh for this labor and i convert that to square yardage. So if those six blankets were, you know, two square yards per blanket, um, then that's how much, that's what I do. And I, I, so I give myself an hourly wage that, that, but I quote it in terms of square yards. You want this number of square yards, this is what it's gonna cost you. Now, when it's my own weaving, so I own the yarn, I just add the materials cost on top of that. Okay. So, so in that sense, um, in a lot of ways, uh, my weaving kind of or my my retail stuff comes under a lot of what they are selling their work for right mm -hmm. um but i i don't really feel bad about that i don't feel like i need to have a huge markup 
to match. Because I'm not spending a lot of time marketing. I'm not spending a lot of time branding, right? I'm right. just, yeah. So that's what I do. I kind of base it on an hourly wage I pay myself. Cool. Interesting, yeah. I think we try to do the same uh, in paying ourselves hourly for the work. But I don't know, like for us, it doesn't know it. Like a, a square yard of a hand towel does not equate equally to the square yard of a blanket. Yeah, yeah. So we yeah. do it more based on item, based on like a 50 yard warp. Cool. I don't, I, right now I'm not putting on a lot of 50 yard warps though. Right? Yeah. So for me, right. it tends to be 12 to 25 yards. Mm -hmm. That's sort of my, my, the spot that I seem to work in mostly. I think nice. that might be changing this year with some designers coming to me. Um, but, you know, I'll, I'll cross that bridge when I come to it. Yeah. Yeah. The last month, the longest warp I've made has been four yards, which yeah. feels insane. Yeah. I feel yeah. like it's a waste. Doesn't that, yeah. Doesn't that feel like, and, and the percentage then waste that you're throwing out is just horrifying. Yeah. It's mm -hmm. crazy. It's insane. Yeah. 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 So what do you do with your swatches? <laughs> that was such a funny question to ask because I just got in trouble with the swatch in one way. Um, so when I, you know, all my samples, they drag around the studio for ages. Uh, I keep, you know, I keep, I label them mostly. <laughs> uh, I, I keep track of them. I look at them a lot. A lot of them end up at Battenfield because she wants samples to show customers about here's something you can do with the farmyard. Mm -hmm. um, and, and in fact, maybe that swatch did there, but, but the truth is then after a while, after a year or so, I get so sick of throwing, you know, here's a cloth, throw it up onto the shelf and, you know, looking for something else. But I did a major clean out and then somebody just last week really loved a blanket that I knew I had a swatch for. And I think I'm pretty sure I threw it out last month <laughs> <laughs> because it was about three years old thinking, eh, not I haven't looked at that since, you know, so I threw it out. Might be that MJ has a swatch of that, but I'm not sure. But yeah, you know, so, you know, no, I, I don't do anything creative with them other than, you know, they are a lovely shorthand way to say, do you like this structure? Do you like it? Mm -hmm. You know, I, I find, I don't know about you guys, but I find that so many people who come to me are, are either graphic designers who think that a picture is the same as a claw right or farmers who have who are not textile people at all right they 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 know they produce lovely wool and they've been convinced that knitting is a worthwhile thing but they're not at all sure about weaving right um and so the idea of trying to tell somebody how a structure works and that there needs to be a structure you know is can be very confusing it can be very confusing i was just working with a, a graphic designer who sent me designs for blankets and what she, you know, it's she's drawn pretty pictures, and they are lovely. They will be lovely blankets, but they still need to be a twill, and they still need to be, <laughs> you know, some, you know, I don't, yeah. I don't it, yeah. We did. I did a blanket order for Stone Ledge Farms, and luckily for me, she has a she has a textile brain because she just sent me these little tiny. Looks like they were woven on a frame loom. She just kind of did the stripe sequences that she wanted. Lovely. And she's like, this is what I want in my blankets. And I said, great, excellent, this is easy. 
Yes. And then I've had yes. people who just have no idea. They're yeah. just like, I really want some fabric. Here's a picture I saw online. Can you duplicate this? Yeah. Yeah. Which has all sorts of problems. <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 When the designer first sent me these things, she was sending me these pictures of Paisley. Like, no, I don't really think I can do that for a blanket. No. Mm. You know, yeah. it's not so a outside of your um yearly accounting of one meticulous project. Sort of time study, yeah. Yeah. Do you keep track of like your everyday projects that you're doing somehow and like category or catalog them and uh, have references to refer back to? Oh yes. Oh my gosh, I I, I keep ridiculously extensive records, yeah. Um so so like this year, I was so proud of what Angie and I were doing. Um, so I use a software program called Pixel Loom, yes. mm -hmm. right, which I just really like. It was an early one that I adopted and you know how hard it is to teach yourself a new program. You know, it's just, please just stay with the same thing. And I mean, I use WeavePoint for my CompuDobby, but I don't design on WeavePoint. I design on Pixel Loom. Um, and so I really love their, um, their project planner page, right? Uh, and every project gets it you know so like crazy crazy legs farm right now i've got six project pages because she wants six different uh warps done and that goes in a bag with the cloth and then once or the the yarn and once then that comes into production i have a big board in my studio that has you know where each project is so it, the board is divided per it's like a grant right um so that on the horizontal axis is what part of the print is this prior to going on the loom is this on a loom or is this post loom right and then there are three categories going up which loom is it on right is it on the folding dobby is it on the professional dobby or is it on the industrial dobby um so that i can track each thing and then that piece of paper goes uh it gets as things are moving on the looms then that piece of paper and all the notes like all so my calculations for spools and my you know, what is my shrinkage calculations or what were my calculations for actual yarns per pound um, by my measure? Um, that all gets tucked in a manila folder. And at the end of that project, when I've got all my notes on it, it gets stored in a filing cabinet and I have it to refer to. Any samples go in there, any little, you know, I always, I always measure off a 10 yard piece of the the yarn and uh, weigh it uh, to, to, to verify yards per pound and then wash it to see what it blooms like. Uh, and that goes in that folder, just all that stuff is safe. Yeah, so I'm, I'm pretty pretty careful about record keeping. Of course though, the, the corollary is that is there's always a question I didn't answer that later I wanna know the answer to. Mm. You know, you, you, there's just always like, did I use a salvage on that? Hmm. Yeah. I think I did, but I didn't write it down. <laughs> I think that kind of record keeping is aspirational for all of us. <laughs> aspirational or anal retentive. I'm not sure. Both of those are eight words. <laughs> yeah, it's aspirational when you really wish you had that information. Oh my gosh, yeah. Yeah. Well, I look at older records now and I realize I didn't even put down whether it was a twill. Mm. You know, well, I, records change over time. Yeah, add yeah. Stuff. you get better at it. You get yeah. better at it. 
I will admit I have to get much better at my record keeping. I'm I'm very much the weaver who just makes the thing, puts it on, keeps a sample, and then just assumes that I'll know what it is. You'll remember, yeah, yeah. yeah. I've started making um, heart code sheets that have our threading, all of like the warping information on it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Any sort of other details about it, and then they it has like. A, the par code for every variation of it. Yeah, yeah. Because she'll bring in like a pile of hand towels, slap them down on my desk so I can put them online. And I'll have to like, I'll, it'll be on me to go figure everything out. So oh, I yeah, started yeah. keeping records. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's true. It's true. I'm just a machine. I yeah. can't, I can't help it. <laughs> That's right. I take care of you, all the non. I've long stuff. said that about you, Tegan. You're just machine-like. I'm yeah. just a machine. I can't be bothered. No, no. It's it's just when you have a partner, it's easy to hand them the things you don't really want to do. Yes. Mm. Well, and you know that was when we started the business in a real way. I was still working full time, so I was supporting us, but then also doing essentially everything that wasn't weaving because yeah. I couldn't like go to work all day and then come home and weave all night. Yeah. So I would do. Yeah. 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 I don't know how that would work for my husband and I. So my husband, you know, he was a, he's a computer engineer uh, and retired now. And so, you know, and, and as just a general engineer, uh, you know, I, there's no question I can't ask him that he doesn't know how to fix something or how yeah. to figure out how to fix it, um, including all the computer questions. Um, but um, but I'm also used to being in charge of my studio. You know, <laughs> I don't tell me how to do stuff you don't know anything about. I right. don't charge it. You know, so there's you know a fair amount of friction there sometimes. But. Yeah, I'm curious about your biggest mistake and how you either overcame it or it taught you a lesson or maybe it just was a big disaster you mean, that went in the you mean trash. the biggest weaving fiasco I've ever had? <laughs> yeah, hit me with it. <laughs> now, see, I thought you were going to ask me about, like, how do I keep my joints happy or something? <laughs> oh, no. Oh, my biggest weaving fiasco. I think that there's oh, a lot God. to have learned from it. Like that for I other people from? as well. <laughs> Let me think. Let me think about that. I, there's something I need to learn how to stop doing that, that I haven't quite figured out yet. So I've got this automatic bean winder that I'm using and my husband's built some beautiful counters for it that count up and down, right? So that I can not lose track. And for some reason, even more now, I have one section that's shorter than everything else. That I'm off by one turning on one freaking section. And that happens to me. I can't, I, like suddenly this in the last six months, I have started doing this. I have no, I never used to, and now I'm doing it. I, I can't, I can't, that's for me, the current fiasco is when I, you know, you see those knots coming and you realize, oh, that one doesn't go around the beam again. That mm -hmm. one is short. Yeah. No, that's a terrible feeling, isn't it? Oh my gosh, yeah. The the curse words that come out of the studio when I see that yeah. happen, Eric always comes down and goes, what happened? Yeah, because it's pretty limited what you can do to fix that. 
Yeah, it's pretty limited. I mean, some some yarns you can sort of just tie on a whole new section. But like I'm currently working with this lovely Romney, which is sticky as all get out as a singles. Yeah. And there's no way I'm t I'm tying 24 knots in that section and moving those through, you know. No. You know, fortunately, yeah, there was, there, I'm, I'm generous with my loom waist, and so I could eke it out, you know. And boy, that knot was right up at the back harness, and I was picking, you know, picking through that one to get the last half inch that I needed. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, that's so an that's interesting. My um, current fiasco. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's a good one. I think that there's a lot of people that have that problem. Uh, I mean, Tegan's even got counters. For yeah, it. the counters were supposed to make it much simpler. Right. And I'm suddenly doing it more. That's the problem. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm suddenly I, making this mistake more often. It didn't happen to me for like two years. I like got the sectional warping down. Everything was going fine. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, like since January, like every other warp I put on, I have at least one that's short, one section. Yeah. So now I, so are you using an automatic beam wiper? Are you hand cranking? I'm hand cranking. Okay. So when you, when your spool, so you're coming through your tension box and you're, you're beaming onto it. So on mine, I have to stop a yard before I want the warp to stop to put in my first tape. Yeah. Right. I'm putting in a piece of tape. If it's a singles, I'm doing two pieces of tape, right? And then it goes around, I do another ring, and that's the knot that you cut, right? Um, and I think that somehow I am messing up the count at that point. Hmm. Even though it's on the counter, I'm either, I'm either, um, I, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know what I'm doing, but I think it's at that point I'm making some mistake. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, before I hit reset, am I am I going around again or am I what am I doing? Yeah. Yeah, that's my biggest fiasco. Oh yeah, that's when it would happen, right? I think that's when it happens for Tegan. When she finishes, cuts it, attaches it, and then forgets to reset it before she starts. Yeah. And then miscounts yeah. and then she, subtracts. It's like a whole it becomes a whole yeah, thing. Yeah, then it becomes this like <laughs> cascade of errors that Right. You can't figure out what you did first wrong. Yeah. What's what's causing that cascade? Yeah. 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 It's annoying as heck. Yeah. Well, on that bummer of a note. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. okay, but then the corollary is what's what's your best achievement? What have you figured out how to do? Oh yeah, for sure. What's that? Oh well, for me it would be um, doing a separately weighted selvage. So I've been mm. weaving with a lot of singles, which. You know, boy, can those fray at the edges? I was having a terrible problem with my edges just fraying, and 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 even on the on the industrial dobby, man alive, was I I could lose like a half a uh, half a section sometimes by the end of the warp. It's just just eating itself, right? And then I realized that if I took a spool and wound two threads of a heavy but very smooth, it's almost like an embroidery floss cotton which when I run out of this, I have no idea where I'm gonna get more. Um, two threads of that and weight that separately off the back of my loom, I have stopped having breakage on the edges. It's wonderful. Nice. It's just wonderful. Are they independently weighted, just hanging, or are they on the a different beam? The two threads hang as one. They're, they're, they go through opposite heddles, right? They have their own mm -hmm. set of heddles. 
So on my 16 harnesses now, I can only read 14 harnesses if I want to have these salvages. But they come through and are slayed separately uh, and attached to the beam and they just weave through. And at the end, when I'm cutting them and separating them, I slide that out of there. And mostly those little loops disappear. On, on some long rolls, they don't want to disappear quite so nicely. But it's still a better edge than I was getting. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, yeah I have, I'm um, in love with this new salvage technique. Yeah. Yeah, I've been doing uh, for the rugs. I've been taking, so I double my warps every other dent. And then at the edges, I four times the warp through the next dent. And then I clamp it down to the back beam so that I've got like super tight, like twangy salvages. And that basically took care of all the work of getting a good oh, salvage. Wow. wow. Yeah. yeah. So I think our biggest achievement, if we were to focus it back on us, I don't know. I think right now is what happened yesterday. So yeah. I made pivot. a hard pivot. So I made uh, handwoven face masks. Oh, I saw those. Yeah, so the cover, the front is all handwoven. The inside is commercial cotton fabric, just yeah. bias tape. And we, I only made 25 of them. Oh, it's kind of blown out. And oh, I see it. Yeah. We put them up on sale yesterday, and we, this is the last one. What was the best piece of advice you ever got? Well, see, that the best piece of advice was about being brave, about being brave and doing what I want to do and be clear about what I want to do. Um, there was a woman in my guild, her name was Bea Stromberg. I just adored her. She had 10 kids, 10 kids. And I came from a family of 12 kids. And she had 10 kids and she had a great big uh, counterbalance, a gomokra, a big gomokra loom in her kitchen. She had gotten rid of her dining room table or her kitchen table because she wanted to leave. And she knew that she spent more time in her kitchen than anywhere else in her house and that she wanted to weave. And so she would put on these long warps and she would weave while she waited for the brownies to come out, while she waited for somebody to call and need pick up from basketball. She would, you know, she was, she was just an inspiration about if this is what you want to do, what do you need to do to get there? Be clear about what you want to do. Um, she was wonderful. Now, she also, the, the hilarious part was she would put on long warps because she knew she, you know, when, when she needed a new warp, she would have to throw her entire family out of the house. And she would have a, a weaving friend come over and they would put on like 50 yards. And, and she was a, you know, she was a, a home decor ecclesiastical weaver, right? Um, so she did a lot of table, uh, table runners and placemats and, you know, dish towels. Um, and, and, and then she would do fancy things for the church. Um, but yeah, she was, she was just inspiring about I'm a weaver. This is what I do. Cool. Yeah. That's Don't such hang your coat on my loom. But, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it was in the middle of her life. And I, that was just like, she was inspiring to me. You know, I mean, I grew up, I'm old enough to have grown up where, you know, if you're a, a, a wife, there's all sorts of social rules about what you can and can't do, you know. Um, but it's taken a long time to get rid of, you know, yeah. both mm -hmm. socially and individually, I think, for people. And she just like, wow, I get to do that. I get to, I get to admit that I'm just so passionate about this thing 
that it's going to be the center of my life forever. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, that she really was lovely. Awesome. She was lovely. She died, it must be a decade ago now, but she was lovely. She was Swedish and she became quite, quite well known as an ecclesiastical leader. Wow. That's cool. That's actually, we got our first AVL from a woman who had a career doing that. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us oh, and hang out. Hours. I'm so sorry. You guys had no idea. You get me started talking. Yeah. No, this has been great. We've actually, so we've been doing interviews since 11 o'clock. Oh my gosh, you must be exhausted. Actually, I'm feeling pretty good. I am. Yeah. Yeah, I actually feel really invigorated. Like, I'm mm. going to go to my loom and weave. <laughs> that was an intense conversation, but I really enjoyed myself. It was. It was really interesting to gain a different perspective on what we do as weavers. A special thank you to Comfort Cloth Weaving for sponsoring the podcast this week. You can find them at comfortclothweaving.com. Another thank you goes out to Rawhead the Recluse for providing music for our podcast. Find him at rawheadtherecluse.bandcamp.com. Don't forget to send your questions to hello at workingweaverpod.com. If you enjoyed what you heard, please rate, review, and subscribe now. It will help us reach more weavers and people who are passionate about hand-created textiles. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Working Weaver Society, and you can get full show notes at workingweaverpod.com. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Working Weaver Podcast. We look forward to sharing more episodes with you each Friday. Bye! Bye!